0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV.
1: Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Aria Cohen-Wade. And my guest today is Chris Arnati. Chris, could you introduce yourself?
0: I'm Chris Arnati, a photographer and writer, and I just uh, released a book um, yesterday. My publisher told me I always have to say that, (laughs) um, called called Dignity, um, Seeking Respect in the Back Back Row America.
1: Yeah, so I'm holding... um, I'm holding the book up to the camera now. Um, and, uh, so thank you for coming on today. Uh, we had a conversation about a little more than two years ago on this platform, and, um, and some, we'll cover some of the same themes, but it won't be a retread because you have this whole new book. And as people can see, it's, um, it's not just a regular book because it is larger and it also has uh, a number of your photographs. And so it's in full color, and, um, you know, there are, there are photos throughout the book, um, that you took of people on your journeys across the country. So, um, so why don't we start with how you ended up in Hunts Point, uh, New York and what, what that community is and how you ended up there. Right. Um,
0: I was a wall street trader. I had gotten a PhD in physics prior to that. I spent 20 years on wall street and, um, Somewhere around 07, 08, during the financial crisis, I kind of had a rethinking of what I was doing and what in the entire industry. And I, the kind of glib way I say it is, I kind of realized uh, we had screwed up, we being the bankers, but also the politicians who supported the bankers and the lawyers who supported the politicians who supported the bankers, kind of what I say now, I call the front row, kind of the um, educated elite some in some senses and the wealthy. Um, and I realized that, you know, one of the things about being a Wall Street trader and being in Manhattan is, you sit in front of these walls of computers and it just flashes green screens and that's kind of how you make your de- your decisions. These green numbers flashing on a screen or red numbers, and you kind of lose touch with the consequences of your actions because they're all just blips on the screen. And you know, I decided to go out and talk to people, kind of to I re- to rethink the way I thought about the world. Um, and that meant these long walks. I mean, sometimes 20 miles, 25 miles. Walks that I eventually brought my camera with, and just basically just wandered around, and just talked to people. Um, at some point, I had kind of done. Um, I realized that what I was getting out of this was more less about the pictures and more about the stories people told me when I reco- when, when I met them and took their picture. Um, and I also realized that I had done basically Manhattan, Queens, Bronx, Brooklyn. I hadn't done the Bronx, so I I decided to go to the Bronx, and when I did. Everybody told me, whatever you do, don't go to Hunts Point. And so, of course, I went to Hunts Point. Um, Hunts Point in South Bronx in general, not just Hunts Point, is stigmatized because it has the highest poverty in New York City, the highest crime, I think, you know, if not the highest, the second highest, um, and it's known for sex work and drugs. Unfortunately, um, when I walked in, I saw that it was so much more than that. It was a thriving community of 30,000 people who had been stigmatized by racism and had been denied all sorts of general, you know, secondary education, secondary institutions, and often it's where New York City put the things it didn't want. It put waste disposal facilities there. It put garbage dumps there. And I what I saw was just a much different community than what was being told in the general um, dialogue. And uh, that made me keep going back and back. Part of it was just personal as well. I enjoyed being there. I enjoyed the stories. I enjoyed the community. I enjoyed the, the light. You know, it's a, it's a south-facing neighborhood, so as a photographer, it has good light. Um, but another part was political. I was just very frustrated that what I saw was so much different than what was kind of the conventional conventional st- story about about the South Bronx. So eventually this evolved into a three-year project where I, ended up losing my job, quitting my job, taking a bio, whatever, being quitted, um, and uh, spent time with what I saw in the community as the most stigmatized within that. Hunts Point itself in the South Bronx itself is stigmatized, but within that community, the addicts and the homeless are even even more stigmatized, the most stigmatized of the stigmatized. And that's who I ended up focusing my time on, as a, as a group of a street family of roughly 50 people who were in the community, um, we're we're part of the community but a stigmatized part of the community.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so what like so you you had been living a like so you you came up with this metaphor of like the front row and the back row and um, you had been living like the front row life. You uh, went to good schools, you got a PhD, you was working on Wall Street and living in a like fancy part of Brooklyn. And, you know, living the conventional American success story. Um, so what, what like drew you to the people who are like living like down and out, like as just as uh, most as close to the like margins as, as you could get, like why did you want to go so far and talk to, to those kind of people?
0: I think partly it's my background. I mean, I, I, did grow up in a small town that is very much working class. Um, I, even, even though I grew up in a very conservative small town in the South, my parents were quite liberal. Um, my dad was an academic, and basically we spent a lot of time um, Focus. He spent a lot of time focused on marginalized communities, both the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s, as well as internationally. So it was kind of where I came from in some levels, and that's something I had forgotten about and kind of had lost touch with was that, that kind of um, sense of learning and that sense of – um not forgetting where you come from sort of thing
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, so i had, I don't think I was ever i think you can you talk to my friends on Wall Street. I was never really fit in there. I was never really fully comfortable there because my background was strongly from the left um, and was you know not not your traditional Wall Street background, so in some senses, it was kind of becoming more what I was traditionally who who I was
1: mm-hmm. um so why did you so I I guess when I first heard of you it was around the 2016 election and you were posting these twitter threads of of photos you've taken of people around the country and kind of commenting on how uh people on the left were misunderstanding um kind of part of it was like misunderstanding the Trump voter and just misunderstanding like poverty in general so how did you um how did you decide that like beyond yeah, just saying within New York City you wanted to like travel travel the country and, and find these like forgotten areas? Part of it was burnout.
0: I had spent three years in, with, with homeless addicts, and I was, it was just taking a physical and mental toll on me. Um, but also it was intellectual, which is I wanted to see what I saw in the Bronx, or South Bronx, was what I'd learned, the injustice, the frustration, the sense of like um, this immense political frustration i was having was true beyond just hunt's point was it in the mathematical term was it translationally invariant or was there more to it than just this one particular stigmatized neighborhood so i started going to other equally stigmatized neighborhoods, even not more stigmatized neighborhoods across the country um it was never intended to be I, I mean i was never wanting to write about trump i never wanted to address it because you know, it's, I'm just not a political reporter. It's not my thing. Poverty and addiction were my thing. Um, you know, the stigmatized community, community stigmatized by racism, and addiction. It's just so, it just so happens by sheer coincidence. When I started this process of going out beyond the Bronx, it was like literally a week, um, before Trump announced for presidency. And one of the things that I found in the white communities, I was going to, and in, to in, in, in a certain degree in Trump, all anybody wanted to talk about was Trump, 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 Trump. And you know his campaign was launched, you know, as a joke and treated as a joke by so many people, including me. But uh, you know, look, I can't deny what I saw. Like if you know, you, if 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 in one day you talk to fifty people and forty-eight of them mentioned Trump, <laughs> and then you log on to Twitter or you look at the press and people are just ignoring it, you know. So it was it was. I think what I ended up doing when when I did talk about Trump and did talk about the election. Was trying to warn leftists like this is a real problem, you know. This is you know this. I, I I don't I don't want to be labeled an apologist for the Trump voter. I I didn't want Trump to win at all. I felt like what was frustrating me, look, I'm, what was frustrating me about the left was this denial that this guy had a chance. Not only had a chance, I I kept saying, you know, this guy might win. Like you you got to take this threat seriously. Um, and you know the other thing is is partly the other reason was is like as you've seen in my book i think i think over half of the book takes place in in minority communities you know it's it's not trump voters it's and i found that the people journalists who would you know would would take my pieces as i was writing would want only pieces about trump mm-hmm. you know i was I, i'm like i'm going to Selma Alabama i'm going to you know the black communities and all you want to hear about is Trump. And, you know, so, there, so it kind of got spun as a Trump project, but it never was about a Trump project. It was a project about addiction and poverty and um stigmatized communities. And within the white, within the white communities of those, Trump resonated.
1: Yeah. And I was, I was actually surprised by how little Trump is in the book. I don't think his name is really is mentioned until like after, you know, like, 80% of the way through the book and then cuz you're you there's one part where you're in Cleveland during the um nomination the Republican National Convention um but yeah it's not there's there's a lot fewer a lot fewer politics things discussed in here than I was expecting which I think is good considering how omnipresent Trump is and um how everything it's you know or everything is seen through his lens but did you um I mean did you think at one point of doing more like a Here's how you can understand the Trump voter kind of, kind of thing as the book, or was it always more like focused on this? No,
0: I didn't want to do that at all. Um, again, I think part of, I've watched people like Trump rise across the world, you know, through my prior work, both in Latin America. I grew up traveling a lot across the world. And, you know, part of the, part of the, the way these people stay in power is people just talk about them all the time. Uh-huh. Both the their opponents, you know, and I, I just wanted this book to be about much things much bigger than that, and you know, to the degree there's a lesson about Trump, I think it's you know, I hope people take away from the book that maybe they can understand a little bit more why someone might, why he might be appealing, um, both in a in a in a, in, a, in a in a in a you know, why he might be more appealing to people than than they rec- than they want to admit, and. Again, this isn't an apology for people who voted for Trump. It's just you know, you, if you want to stop, if you want to stop Trump, and I want to stop Trump, is you have got to understand why he appeals to people. You know, you, it's, it's like you know your enemy. <laughs> you know, if yeah. if, if, that's, if that if that's, if you view him as your enemy.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, you know, to uh, to explain is not to excuse, um, and we yeah we need you know, want to understand um, why people are attracted to this person. Um, without without being like, yeah, an apology for them. Um so one other thing that you said in that so you have a, like a kind of a long introduction that deals with the Hunt's point um part of your life and you talk about you know, you're uh following people who are drug addicts or sell drugs or um prostitutes, um and you talk about like kind of either developing or maybe kind of reigniting a substance abuse uh problem of your own and you would go to bars after you would leave Hunts Point and drink a lot, um, and that was surprising me because I, I don't remember seeing you mention that in other stuff that I've read um, that you've written. So, yeah, could you talk a little bit about that and how that you know, I guess that gave you sympathy with people who are have drug addiction problems and.
0: Well, I wanted to I wanted to put that in there for honesty's sake, um, but also I didn't want to dwell on it because. People like me tell that story all the time and it gets told in a very sympathetic way. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to equate what I, what I did at all with anything with what the people I dealt with were going through or, and, you know, so I try to minimize it. I tried to, I wanted it there for honesty, but I also didn't want to emphasize it too much because it's, I want this to be about the people I met, not, but not about me. Um, and, you know, I didn't want people to say, well, you got clean. Anybody can get clean. Well, you know, (laughs) I had a lot of support and my addiction or, or I wouldn't even call it addiction. My, my, my substance abuse was driven by selfishness. Wasn't driven by any um, great pain I was going through. And almost, almost 95% of the people I met on the the road, their addiction was driven by a great pain and a great situation they were going through. So I just, I didn't want to make the equivalency at all.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, so the fir- so the first uh, chapter of the book is about um, McDonald's, and that's something that we did discuss two years ago, but we'll, we'll talk about it again, and there's lots of photos in here of people in McDonald's. Um, and the chapter has a great title, which is, "If you want to understand the country, visit McDonald's." Um, so yeah, why, why has McDonald's become this place where you can like go and see you know a part, a part of life that to the front row is, is kind of invisible?
0: Because it's so essential, I mean, often because it's the only thing working in these towns, and that's, a, that's not necessarily um, saying that McDonald's and the way it operates is great. It's saying the way we, we run our, cult, our society is bad. If, if, if we force people to have to find community in a place that was designed to be entirely transactional, then it tells you about the, the society we've built has, has fallen apart in terms of um, giving community to people you know um i think about you know gary indiana i think about places that have been devastated by um post pre you know by by factories moving away and by racism and what you know you go to gary on a certain time of day and the only thing that really is kind of like it's filled with people and active and 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 working is the mcdonald's and this is true of so many so many neighborhoods where the mcdonald's provides kind of a community center for people who are on the margins um and it provides a place for them to meet and and for for the most marginalized for the addicts for the homeless it's it's generally a place where they can go and be left alone they can just sit there they can go you know on their way in they can grab a newspaper out of the garbage can and a soda cup so they look like you know maybe fill it up at at the soda machine and um just sit there and um and just be left alone one of the things I keep saying is like if a homeless person goes to college campus as under, you know, as open minded as college campuses are, they kick them out. <laughs> the college campus will call the police in New York, you know, in a McDonald's. They can go there and they can go in the bathroom, maybe watch up, maybe shoot up um, and, you know, charge their phone, um, use the Wi-Fi. But more importantly, just be left alone, man, <laughs> you know, just sit and, and talk to each other and be, you know, maybe meet their friends there um and in some places like Bakersfield California where i spent you know that time in that mcdonalds and i write about that in the book it's just it, it's really a central it's like it's like a, like a treehouse it's like a clubhouse you know and um it's it, it serves a you know again i don't as a leftist people are going to come back and mcdonald you know mcdonalds doesn't pay its employees enough mcdonald's is provides bad health you know yeah, and yeah, but that's not, that's not really a big concern when you're, when you when, when you're, when you're on the streets and all you really need is good, good, cheap food and a place to escape the weather.
1: Yeah. I mean, is it so? I guess part of it is that, um, for either, <laughs> either McDonald's central command or like the individual managers have said like, we're not going to kick people out, even if they're sitting here for hours and hours on end, like just nursing a coffee or something. So, you know, I feel like in a lot of places, if you're just kind of sitting there besides a public park or something, um, you know, someone will come along and say like, you need to, you need to move along. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting because McDonald's is the icon of kind of like, um, American capitalism and a lot of things that are, that the left sees as wrong with America, you know, like, uh, Especially in like the 90s and the 2000s, there was that movie Super Size Me where the guy ate McDonald's three meals a day, um, for 30 days and like gained 20 pounds and, um, and like, you know, McMansions are a term of, uh, <laughs> condemnation of like cookie cutter architecture. And there's all this other stuff where we just say like McDonald's is, is kind of, you know, poisoning poisoning the country um but then like you've you demonstrate that it's clearly serving this function of community center and just like place to go you know place to use the bathroom or possibly shoot up um and yeah and and people can get (laughs) a sandwich for like three dollars
0: People also go there and play checkers. They go there and they, they play bingo. They go there and they play chess. You know, I always think about the, there's an East LA McDonald's in, in, a, in a 95% Mexican American neighborhood, working class Mexican American neighborhood. I think it's in Pico Rivera. There, the McDonald's, I would sit there for weeks on end and everybody would come in and play chess. You know, that's where the chess club met. <laughs> you know, so, um, look, I, I, I at, at a much deeper level when I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't like the society that we've built that is all franchises and all profit-driven companies. And, and I kind of mentioned that in my book, I think, I hope that comes clear that this kind of this, this Uber efficiency, which is what McDonald's represents, you know, this obsession with profits and efficiency is why we have McDonald's. You know, I have a problem with that, but at the, at the pragmatic level, that's the world we got right now. And in that world, people at the, at the people at the margins, people on the working class, that's what they all they really have access to. I mean, you know, that's the world we built for them, as I say. I think I say in a line is like, you know, we in the front row have built this hyper efficient, capitalist driven society where we, you know, we built, we've ensured that McDonald's are the only things that exist in these communities and then we don't use them.
1: Yeah. Um, and so the, the two, the two companies as far as I can remember that you mentioned in this book are McDonald's and Walmart. And Walmart is not as not, doesn't get as much profile as McDonald's, but you mentioned people shopping at Walmart. Uh, some people sleeping in their cars in the Walmart parking lot, um, and or the, you know, what I did. Sorry? did.
0: what I did a few. Times well. I also slept in my car in parking lots now and then. Walmart. Right,
1: right, and then the you know the Walmart is the thing that like moved in and uh, drove in one telling the like small businesses on Main Street out of business. And, um, and then there's, you talk about, there's one place where people are really mad that the Walmart is like, the closest Walmart is like 30 minutes away. And so they, it's very hard for them to shop. Maybe that's Cairo. Um, but that's the, Cairo. Yeah. yeah. So Cairo, Illinois. Um, so, you know, so Walmart is like an important part of the, <laughs> of life for people who are on the margins. And, and once again, this made me think like, you know, uh, anti Walmart campaigning was, like, a big part of progressive politics in, like, the 2000s. And I watched a documentary that was called something like The Cost of a Low, Low Price or something that was an anti-Walmart documentary. And, you know, people would boycott Walmart or right-thinking people would go to Target instead of Walmart because somehow <laughs> Target was better than Walmart, um, didn't, like, ruin uh, small communities as much. Um, so, yeah, but it, I, I guess it's just, like, there is – it just reminded me, again, of the – Contrast between the you know the right thinking people are condemning the giant multinational corporation that 's <laughs> destroying the country, but at the same time they're like they 're being used by uh, very poor people as well so i, I don 't know what to make of it.
0: I mean, one of the things I say is, if I want to go, when I go into community, if I go into a community and I want to find the refugee community and their immigrants, I go to the Walmart. That's where they are. That's where they mix with other people. That's the one place where you'll meet. You know, if you go into like in Lewiston, Maine, which is I think 20% Somali at this point or 10% Somali, where the Somalis and the and the Quebecois, the whites, interact, is at the Walmart. That's where they both shop. That's where a lot of them work. And so, yes, look, I have a lot of problems with these. You know, I have big problems with our kind of hyper efficient, um, monopolistic, capitalistic society we've created. But the elites opt out of that and then blame the, the working class for it. <laughs> you know, and then make fun of the working class for doing it. They say, I'm not going to use Walmart as a, you know, make, then make fun of people who use Walmart while using Amazon <laughs> or while owning Walmart much stock you know in their pension fund or you know so uh, that's not all elites obviously i mean and it, it, believe me and I, I don't want to keep on sounding like i'm bashing the left because i'm i'm a leftist but the right is is, is bad <laughs> the right has has empowered these corporations for for forever um i just wish the left would fight a little bit harder and remember that it once was the party of the working class and needs to regain the party be the party of the working class and understand that in some cases Despite their best intentions, they don't understand the working class they advocate for. You know that's not not true of all of them. Obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of leftist progressives who completely understand the working class, come from the working class, remember their roots, and are still part of it. But it, but often the, the the most important voices within the party, the political elite, have forgotten that they are the party of the working class. They should be.
1: Um, let's, let's talk about, uh, the Lewiston section a little bit. Um, so I found that section really interesting, um, because it's, uh, i actually, I've been to Lewiston, one of the few places you mentioned that I've been to, and I, um, and it also is kind of one of the few, uh, of the more positive, uh, sections in the book, or it doesn't, it doesn't exactly have a happy ending. Um, and I won't say what happens at the end of that section, but it seems like the, the, Somali immigrants that have come to Lewiston and, and established themselves there, like, are kind of revitalizing this town in Maine and, like, are, they, like, started businesses in the closed, like, downtown uh Main Street shops and stuff like that. And it's, and there's, there's ten, you just got tension between the French-Canadian um Americans who, you know, people who, like, moved... To Lewiston a hundred years ago to be like loggers or something. Um, and the new, the new arrivals, but it didn't seem like a kind of a poisonous type of anti-immigrant rhetoric that you can hear in other places. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about that? And also why like, why you think the Somalis have been able to like succeed in a way that other communities haven't?
0: I think one of the things I wanted to do was again, I don't want to bash people over the head. In the book, I, I hope they take the lessons from the, from the chapters without me having to, you know, and one of the things I wanted to show was, you know, the, the Somalis had, you know, have, have come in and taken a, a kind of <laughs> revitalized a part of town that has been depressed for a long time. And that, you know, I wish that part of town had never been depressed. I think that, you know, that part of town should have, when, when the factories left, um, that hurt the white working class that was there. Into the vacuum came um, refugees, and they got pushback. Um, You know, some of it, um, some of it aggressive, some of it just kind of whispery. Um, But I, I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to um, minimize the damage, the the problems that a lot of Somalis in Lewiston have faced. But in aggregate, it seems like the, the community is 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 handling the situation well. I mean, it could have gone so much worse. Um, that you have, um, you have this community moving in who is very different, um, than what came before. Um, and, um, and, uh, you know, there, there have been instances that I don't want to di- diminish in terms of, um, the, the racism and the, and the, and the, and the, the obstacles the Somalis have faced there. Um, I felt like at the end of that chapter, I included a little bit from another town in Nebraska. Um, where Somalis had moved in, and it seemed like that was going much less well. Mm-hmm. Lewiston had, um, had Lewiston was, were, you know, partially because of time, partially because of, um, work on both sides of the aisle, um, meaning the, 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 the Quebecois and the Somalis outreach programs. I think things in Lewiston are going well by, by, by measures of other towns. They're not going well enough. Um, I, I don't think there is any Somali and Lewiston, who will tell you they haven't faced problems, um, and they don't face still face stigma and and and, um, and, and a sense of um, you know, people just telling you not you know you don't belong here, even though they've been there now for you know thirty years, twenty five years. Um, but you know, I, I think one of the things that didn't make it into the book that I wish um, you know I, I spent mo- I spent a lot of time also. And um, Mexican American communities, especially El Paso, and you see a origin- another. You see that that kind of that sense that the, pe- the 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 one working class communities who are still who probably still believe in the American dream are, are those who are most recent arrivals, the immigrants and refugees who've come in. And I believe you're upstate New York, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I think you see that there. I know and I know in Buffalo there's a big Iraqi community, there's a Bosnian community in Utica. Um, um when I go to those towns, um these kind of post these kind of towns especially in the rust belt have been devastated by by the industry leaving. Kind of the only positive story you find in them is kind of refugee communities and immigrant communities have come in and and kind of rebuilt um and uh, and built, you know, rebuilt parts of the town
1: um so do you think it's like that you, there's uh, throughout the book there's um mentions of people being like uh, upset about how the like you know the main street or the downtown used to be full of small businesses and people used to go there to shop and get their hair cut and stuff like that and a lot of those businesses have have gone out of business and it, it was an interesting contrast with the story of the somalis in uh Lewiston who were able to like revitalize a, a downtown, and so, so the businesses. It seems like mostly catered to other Somalis, selling like halal meat and, and stuff like that. Um, but you know, is it that's, is it like if the community get has this? You know, was, was like beaten down by fifty years of deindustrialization and, and everything slowly leaving. Then they can't. Then people can't like find it within themselves to try to like, I'll start a business or let's band together and make this a community hall or something like that. Whereas like new immigrants are just like starting fresh and they'll have the energy and they're not, you know, yeah, they see the, they have the American dream still in their minds and they have a sense of anything is possible here. And so they'll start a small business or something like that. Or, or maybe the other option would be like, you know, when a a group of like thousands of Somali refugees come to one place, like the front row Somali refugees are, are still there. Like they're still staying there for some length of time. And then maybe like their kids will go to Harvard or something like that. And so the people who are the go-getters and the uh, job creators, as Mitt Robbie used to say, like they're still part of that community and they like are let loose and then do their thing.
0: I think in, in, a, in an odd way, immigrant communities come often with a lot more, um, uh, a lot less stigma attached to them than certainly than, than um, American, American African African Americans I think in you know in many cases um, the Somalis who've come you know come with a lot of you, you see that where they said oh my, I'm here because my, my cousin's here and my cousin helped me find a job at you know blah and blah and you know and so there's a lot there's a there's a big there's a big there's a big um they come with often, often they often come with um, um skills that you know Post, um, you know, graduate degrees. Um, um, you know, it's not all just working class people. It's, it's, it's elites that come as well. Right. And I think it just creates a, a more vibrant, a more more um, functional community in the sense that, again, and I also think they face less. St- I don't want to diminish the fact that they do get a lot of racist attacks and they do face stigma. But I think no group, no group in the United States faces as many obstacles as um, African Americans do. Native born African Americans. I think they are burdened with uh, a legacy of, of uh, you know, current racism and legacy of racism that just makes it so much harder. So when people say, "Well, if Somalis can do it, or if you know, if Koreans can do it, or Vietnamese can do it, why can't blacks do it?" It's just for me, it's just pretty obvious. It's like that all those three immigrant communities don't face the obstacles and racism that the, the blacks do here in this country. Um, in terms of um, Lewiston, I can't say you know. I mean, I think. I think there is some what they call brain drain going on. I think you know those who a lot of the younger kids, younger people who've been raised in Lewiston, who are Quebecois or white or uh, French Can- French Amer- was it French Canadian American? <laughs> is that what the term? Uh, or just Lewiston residents? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, move on. You know, and and don't come back. And I think that's certainly a problem. You know, with our system is we tend to take the what I call the front row and pluck them out of the town and move them on. You know, and um, that hurts. That hurts these communities. I mean, one of the thing one of the communities that didn't make it into the book, which is one of my favorite communities in America, is Um Lumberton, North Carolina, and it's fascinating because it's one it's one third black, one third Native American, the Lumbee Indians, and one third um, white. Um, But I spent some time in a community college there, and what I found was really interesting. The community college was out of session, but what, what was in session was uh, uh, basically a magnet high school for the for the county. I think it's Robeson County where it was like – it was a, one of these uh, magnet schools where when you graduate from high school, you also get a uh, – what's it called? An associate's degree or, mm-hmm. or a, a two-year college degree. It's, it's a program my daughter went to here in New York City. Um, and – it was really a wonderful group of kids. It was, I, I think, the, one that, the ones that were graduating. There were like fifty of them. They are all from the county. They're all lower income mostly. I mean, they're all mid- middle to lower income because Lumber- Lumberton is not a wealthy place. Um, and they were all. They're a very diverse group: black, white, Native American. But they're all, you know, to a person. They're all going to leave Lumberton and not come back. Now I get it. I don't want to ever question i mean i did that i i I think they have every right to do that you know they don't find a community that values them that in their mind in lumberton they want to make a career beyond what lumberton offers but i think you know it's unfortunate in some levels that they they if they returned would do great great things in lumberton Um, and it would help Lumberton fight the stigma currently fight in some of the problems. So I I do think it's a problem that we, we tend to, you know, I mean, again, I don't want, I left (laughs) and you know, part of the book is I talked about trying to go back. I don't want to go back to where I grew up. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to tell anybody they, they should have to stay, but that process is, is, is not leaving these towns better off.
1: Um, yeah, that's, that seems like a good segue to discussing a chapter that is called this is my home and kind of looking at that question, uh, from the other side, the the people who stay in these small communities and why, why they stay and the most common answer is this is, this is my home. (laughs) So, um, it's, it's one of those things that it took me a while to get how offensive that question
0: was, you know, meaning part of this process for me was kind of five years of realizing that a lot of the way I used to think was, extremely offensive and privileged in an unintentional way. (laughs) And this whole idea that you should just tell people to move. I mean, you know, (laughs) why? (laughs) Like, you know, but I'll let you finish your question. Sorry.
1: Yeah, I guess I I, I didn't have a distinct question, but like, I mean, one of the, um, you you talk to, you, you quote multiple young people, especially who say they are staying because they have to take care of their parents. Um and maybe they would want they would want to leave but like you know their parents are on disability and that's all they have so something like that so that's like you know that makes sense but that's also kind of sad and then you have these other people who yeah they've lived here they're they're born here you note know, in some places people will um say oh I wasn't born here I was born ten miles away like very different
0: the, the, the woman in Cairo okay Cairo is a, is, a, is a, Cairo is a town of I don't know. 2,000 people of that that is maybe, you know, occupies a, a, a where the Ohio, I think which two rivers, I think it's the Ohio Mississippi, yeah, the Ohio and Mississippi interact come together there, or maybe yeah. it's, um, it's
1: like the far southern point of Illinois
0: and, and it's all, it's 95% African American, but the woman who, when I asked her, are you from here, you know I was at the projects, so the low income housing project, and she's like, no, I'm, I'm from and she mentions a neighborhood five blocks away. <laughs> so, you know, I got that, I got that so often, you know, um, no, I, I think are you from here? No, I grew up, you know, in, you know, Blankville. Where's Blankville? Oh, it's three miles down the road. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think, um, look, the way I think about it is, and I, you will know, kind of get in a more kind of buzzwordy philosophical level, which is like, all we really care about these days is things we can put a value on, a monetary value on. We can measure, and those things, those, those forms of meaning, those things we can't measure, we don't really value. So uh, what's the value of, you know, place? What's the value of, you know, it's one of the few things you're gifted as a poor person. If you grow up someplace, like you're a member of your, your, somebody from Utica is what a Utica, a Uticaian? That's <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> Um You're in Syracuse, right? You're a Syrac- R-
1: I'm a R-
0: Rochester, R- Rochesterian. A Rochesterian. I mean, yeah. you know, like <laughs> that means something to people, and it should mean something to people. And so, you know, you don't have to apply for any school or to to be do that. And that's same with rural places. You know, like people really might they might be attached to a place, and it means a lot to them at a at a very deep level. And we tend to say say that think that people who say, "Hey, you know, I really want to be here because the hills are are me, man. These are my hills." You know, this is this is me, like going out every morning and feeding the chipmunks or whatever. That's kind of me. <laughs> that's who I am. And we all just simply say, "Well, come on, just, that's not value. That's dumb." And I think that that's valuable. And or and, and again, you know, you talk about the the multiple times there there are young people I've met who can't leave because they have obligations to their family or their family has obligations to them. You know, I, again. I agree with you at one level that's sad, but another level, isn't that admirable that the, the woman is in st- you know, a young, the young, the 18 year old Mexican American woman who's staying in East LA. So she can be her mom's translator. Um, you know, she's the only one who speaks both Spanish and, you know, and, and a- English. You know, I, I also find that admirable that she's doing that, you know, Um I, I was able to leave because my parents, you know, had, had their stuff together by our measures, you know? And so, I don't know if we should basically why we should treat each other as basically things that just can just like little pawns on a table that can just move. (laughs) Cause you know, and then at a pragmatic level, you're asking people to move often when their home is all the, the only investment they have and you're asking them to sell at the low often, like, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. this town is dying, therefore sell your home and you won't get very much for it. You know, it's like,
1: I don't know. Right. Um, yeah, in in Rochester, the uh, one of the divides at least is uh, East Side, West Side, and uh, the city is split by the Genesee River and the Erie Canal. Once a hundred years ago, went through downtown. Um, it was rerouted at some point, and so that was the core of downtown. And then the East Side is the um, wealthier side, and the uh, West Side is somewhat less wealthy. It had uh, the the Kodak. Uh, manufacturing plant, this huge facility, uh, is on the West side. And, um, and yeah, people, I'm not a native here. I, 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 moved here about eight years ago and people treat, uh, East side, West side as like crossing the Bering Strait or something. Um, <laughs> you know, people, the people, people who just say, Oh, I don't go to the West side. Um, <laughs> you know, and whereas you could swim across the Genesee in like five minutes at most, um, it's, or, or maybe two minutes. So, so yeah, it's just like everyone, like, in I think in a lot of places, there's just a the sense that like, this is our part, and that's their part over there. Um, and we're different, you know, we're different than them. Um, have you, did you um, ever go to Oklahoma City in your travels? Yes, I did. Um, I read a book a couple of weeks ago, I finished it, uh, that's called Boomtown, I believe. And it's the kind of a, it's a story, both like a history of Oklahoma City and, the story of the NBA team, the thunder over the past couple of seasons and them trying to win the championship. And I really knew nothing about the Oklahoma city, but saw some positive references to this book and got it out. And it has a, it's the conceit is basically like Oklahoma city is like the strangest city in America uh, because of how it came to be through this crazy, like land rush where people like in 1880, literally like stood in a line and then started running in order to reach the point where they could claim a plot and then all these, you know, the, like, businesses controlled the town for a long time. And then they did, like, according to this author, they're, they did, like, the most dramatic urban renewal and subsequent failure of urban renewal in America and basically bulldozed most of downtown with this plan that was um, designed by I.M. Pei, the architect who just died a couple weeks ago. And uh so basically they bulldozed everything and built very little. So the downtown is... Which is the original spot of where people like made a land claim in 1880 is now like mostly parking lots and they never built the convention center and all this other stuff. And there's and, like, there's other many w- reasons why Oklahoma City is is strange. Like there's, they always have to be on guard for tornadoes and, and stuff like that. But to, I was just wondering if you, um, and, and also there's a lot of like racial tension, uh, both in, in Oklahoma City and famously in Tulsa where there was this race riot that, uh, like where 300 black people were murdered. Um, So yes. Did you have any, uh, Oklahoma city? Well, I mean, I spent most of my time,
0: most of my time in Oklahoma was spent with the, in the the black community. And, um, what struck me was as an outsider who didn't know much about it was, I had not realized there was that large, a black community. I had not realized it was, um, it was as, um, as, uh, it faced as many obstacles as it did. Although I shouldn't have been, have been surprised. They face obstacles everywhere, but, um, the other thing that struck me and it made it very odd to me was how much space there is. As you mentioned, like the streets are really wide and the blocks are really long. And it, it's really just this weird sense of I'm in a poor, you know, I'm both in a suburb um, in some senses, but I'm also in a very poor black community that is Kind of structure like a suburb. And so it was just, it was, it was in many ways, um, um a very, it's just a very strange place. Um, and then you, because it's Oklahoma, you have the Native American population, which, um, adds a, a, a adds a complexity to everything. But, um, you know, one of the things that frustrates me when you mention that is when we kind of divide things into red and blue America, you know, when, when, when people just say, Look, I'm frustrated with Trump. I'm frustrated with the way Alabama, Mississippi votes, or Oklahoma votes, let's secede or get rid of them. And I'm like, you know, Oklahoma City has a very large black community. Um, Al- Mississippi has the highest percentage of black black voters of any state. You know, within within very red streets are very very blue areas, mm-hmm. and within very blue states are red areas, as you know, in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. So this idea that it's geographically based our problems is, I think, very, very, you know, a pro- you know, mistake. And I, it's something I wish people would stop saying, like, again, Oklahoma city, it's, it's a very large African-American community.
1: Yeah. And they, yeah, I, the, the, book is interesting. I recommend it to people who have have an interest in it. And yeah, he talks about, especially, you know, um, the city was always like, well, b- we'll build a new highway and that will like fix everything. It'll, like let people come in really fast. And where are they going to build the highway, the black neighborhoods where they can't, Effectively fight, fight against that. City Hall. Um, imagine. So, so, uh, the book is, is broken up by these sections of photographs and, you know, like 20 pages in a row of, of photographs. So here's, here's someone, uh, sitting in there, sitting, <laughs> sitting in McDonald's. And, um, these are kind of, the way they're presented is kind of like, um, you know, you, there's no captions and there's no, identification of the location and you, th- you talk about how you usually use like pseudonyms for the people you're interviewing. Um, so why I, I, I had a thought about why you might want to do that, but why did, why did you choose to do it that way and not say like, Oh, this, this photo is from the Bronx or whatever.
0: Um, because I want to, it goes back to what I just said before, basically, which is I want people to know that this isn't just about geography, right? It's everywhere. Like that per that person in the McDonald's that you first, the African-American gentleman in the McDonald's, um, that's now become kind of the most used photograph in the book um, is in Hammond, Hammond, Indiana,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or, or Illinois. I don't know which way where Hammond is. Is it's right near the border of Indiana, and Illinois, it's south of Chicago. But you know, the picture that could have been there was from Syracuse. Was from Rochester, actually. One of my favorite McDonald's in the world is in Rochester. It's in the African American community in Rochester. It's in a it's in a, like a big strip plaza, like at a, at a
1: We'll have to figure out off air where where exactly this McDonald's is so I can go visit it.
0: It stands a bit apart from the plaza. The plaza is one of those old shopping malls from like the Uh seventies. And and it's one of those things where it's at on the roadside and the plaza is way back from the roadside. Uh Um, There's a really, but it could have, you know, that picture could have come from that one, you know, it could have come from Syracuse, Rochester. It could have come from, you know, um, Los Angeles. And that's kind of my point is that, you know, kind of, it's meant to basically say this is really everywhere and this is nowhere. Um, it could, you know, and, and also, also, you know, I don't also think uh, the other thing was, uh, you know, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily fair to the person to be like, Oh, that's Jim from, you know, right. Let's go
1: Dick's past and find out why he's not, doesn't have dignity. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, okay, let's, let's talk about dignity and why did you decide that that would be the title and, um, and, you know, subtitle Seeking Respect in Back Row America, what, what is it about, you know, dignity that you want to make it your theme and how, how do you see it playing out in the lives of, of the people you talk to?
0: I think one of the, what I try to build on in the chapters is is this idea that we've taken away a lot from the working class. You know, as our, as our economy has shifted to being, as our culture has shifted to being all about the economy, as our economy has shifted being all about um how much you know um it's really harmed people without education and it's really harmed the working class um and so i basically say look we built this culture that really hurt this society that really hurts the working class but the, the those who without education um and we've taken away kind of what i say are things that they they can value without having credentials you know faith race place all these things that are just you're born with you're gifted and that's basically humiliating. And a lot of people feel humiliated. A lot of people feel disrespected. A lot of people, and, and this isn't a white or black thing. This is, this is, or Hispanic. This is just all the people I write about white, black, Hispanic, um, urban, rural. They kind of feel like they're being looked down on. And I think they are, right. I think they do. They have that. They are being looked down on. I think we kind of look down on them and that's humiliating. And one of the things you do when you humiliate is you try to look for a way to kind of find respect and, you know, the the response being to feeling humiliated is to want dignity and to try to seek it out. And, you know, what, what really struck me through this project, both when I first walked into the South Bronx, was how resilient people are. How, despite facing structural racism, despite, despite facing a society rigged against them in every way, um, economic and cultural, um, people... People make the best of what they're given and, and kind of overcome, overcome the humiliation to, to you know, I think of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an odd example, but one of the things in the South Bronx that brought me there, um, was the pigeon keepers. People keep pigeons on the roof. Mm-hmm. To me, it's, you know, it, that was a larger part in the book. We got edited out, but the meaning, what I mean by that is like, I mean, that's, how, you know, pigeons are considered kind of rats with wings by a lot of people you know and and here they you know i i just i would love people to to go on these roof decks for people there's often roof decks in abandoned buildings where people break into the building and put these coops up on the top and have like 800 pigeons that they fly in these kind of beautiful swirls and take and take care of and to me that's beautiful that's you know making the most of what the world has given you and creating art and creating beauty and you know giving yourself dignity by, by being an artist in that sense. And you see it so many different places where they kind of, people are forced to improvise, um, and create the, the most, you know, graffiti is another one of those where, you know, it's, it's a non-approved form of art, but it's beautiful. And it's, it's a way to kind of saying, I want dignity. Um, now wanting dignity and feeling humiliated, the quest for dignity doesn't necessarily always end up in good, good places. You know, um, it, it, it leads to I think it leads to racism in, in many cases. It can lead to wanting to join um, racist organizations because they give you dignity based on your skin color. Um, and that's bad. And I think we should call it out when it happens and fight it. But I, I, I think if you want to, in, in my opinion, and I, I don't want to dwell on it too much, if you want to fight that tendency, you you you, you fight you fight the broader question of why do people feel humiliated?
1: Yeah. And you, um, and I think, I think it's the last (laughs) chapter. You have a juxtaposition of two stories. So one is a white guy somewhere in the South and he has a Confederate flag on his, um, truck or whatever. And you ask him, you know, or you say something like, you know, what what does that mean to you? Or something like that. And he says, you know, it's just like our a, a southern way of life. Um, you know, hunting and fishing—that's what it means to me. And I had never heard anyone say Confederate flag meant hunting and fishing to them before. But um, that's an interesting thing that probably most people in the north would not would not accept or not understand. And and then you have this uh, tell the story that I think is in Milwaukee of a like a side street where a um, young black man was uh, shot by the cops. And Killed. Killed okay killed by the cops and then his friends um people built like a big memorial right where it happened and and then his friends um like every day they like block off the street with their cars and kind of just like hang around and like tell stories while they're there and you walk around there and there's some people are not very accepting of you of you walking around there yeah I mean I
0: they, it, it ebbed and flowed. Some days it was basically, you're not, you, you know, some days there was only five people. Some days there were 50 people, 20 people. And I, I'd come at the tail end of it. It was, it was winding down because it, it happened, I think, two months earlier. Um, but I think one of the quotes I love that he, that, so basically this, this gentleman would get in my face when I would get there, when I was trying to take a picture of the memorial. He based, one of the quotes I really love, and I think it's right, is he basically tells me this is not my story to tell, meaning me. You know it's and and he's right in many ways and I wanted to I, I put that in there because I want people to say yeah you know this guy what they're you know it's broader part of a broader thing I think when people look at the way um, young blacks respond to how they've been stigmatized and 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 look at them and say you know that's wrong why do you need to be more polite you need to be more interactive you need to be no I <laughs> mean. I get, I get where they're coming from and I get where he's coming from and I get where the frustrate, I mean, the frustration is boiling over. And, you know, I, I, like, I think he, I think the thing he said to me was like, I kept on saying, well, look, I'm a, you know, the, the, hey, I'm actually well intended. I'm a journalist. I'm going to, I'm going to tell, you know, I'm here to do, I'm here to do you right. And he's like, the journalists have already turned, you know, Savili, the, the young man who was shot down by the police. They've already turned him into a thug. And they're turning us into thugs. And w- w- how, why can I trust you? And he's, mm-hmm. he was, he, he's right. Why could he trust me? You know, one of the things I, wanted, I want people to read, I hope people got out of that passage, was I was the one who was wrong. You know, the, the behavior they were doing, in, you know, to me was, pr- the, I think, the appropriate behavior, which is basically saying, you know, I, I don't trust you outsiders. Mm-hmm. You know, you've done nothing good for us in the past. Why should I trust you? Mm-hmm. And he's right.
1: Um, so one thing that since the last time we talked has come an idea that's come to be discussed more by economic types and intellectuals and some politicians or want to be politicians is a universal basic income. And, uh, Andrew Yang is this guy who's like a, I'm not exactly sure what his background is, Silicon Valley investor or something. And he's running explicitly on a plan that like every American would get a thousand dollars a month from the government, you know, for they don't have to do anything. They just just get it, and that's like a baseline of of support. So, and the, and the last time we talked, we talked a lot about like uh, people wanting work and the dignity of work, um, and that and there's a lot of stuff in here about people who, you know, the factories left, and that was the beginning of the de- of the decline. Uh, so, have you have you thought any about universal basic income as would that? Do you think that would be a good policy?
0: I'm still as confused as I think I was then. Um, Meaning, my tendency is to think: Look, I I wish what I know, what I do know, having spent a lot of time around the working class, is um, the jobs that are available to them suck (laughs) and don't and don't provide dignity. Um, You know, I think you know others will completely disagree with me. Is I think the answer is to provide stable union employment or jobs that. Pay them more and give them a sense of stability. Um, I don't know that if our, if we're gonna ever, you know, if the GOP will ever allow that again. Um, but, um, I do also know that the social services network we provide is far too complex. And, you know, you have Section 8 housing, you have um, food stamps, you have an array of programs that have all sorts of hurdles and things. It's just, just give people money, man. <laughs> you know? if you're below a certain threshold, just give them a card that is money. I don't care what they spend it on. You know, they can spend it on housing. They can spend it on food. They can spend it on diet coke. They can spend it on junk food. You know, maybe they'll spend it on drugs. You know, look, it's not my place to tell people how to spend their money um, and to be a nanny state. Um, but give give we need to give the poor, we need to give the working class more, more support. It needs to be simpler support. It preferably needs to be cash support. Do we need to go all the way and, and have a universal basic income. Um You know, I, I worry that the problem with that is I think you're still going to get people, who you know, you're still going to be, if, if you're somebody who, who gets the universal basic income and does nothing else, you're still going to be stigmatized as a, a uni or whatever. You know? <laughs> like, you know, Oh, you're just a uni you lazy uni. Um, so, <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, is it, do, do, am I against it? No, because anything right is anything is better than what we have now. Do I think it's a it it's like the magic formula that will solve all our problems? Absolutely not. Nothing is. Our problems are too deep in my mind. Um, you know I, but I, I generally believe you know I'll get. It's interesting is I think it's Matt Bruenig loves to kind of tease people, including me, when I say this, which is like you know my general. What I generally learned was everybody wants a, a decent job. Like, people just don't want to people don't want handouts <laughs> you know, and, and to use the handouts a wrong phrase It's, it's it, people don't people would far rather you know do people abuse the social safety? yeah of course do people while should people abuse the system yeah <laughs> there's always a there's always a small margin group that but it's but you know what it's better we, we need to give poor people and working class more more assistance we certainly need universal health care i mean it's a, what, what is really just appalling is our health care system um but beyond that, most people just want a job man mm-hmm. <laughs> they will because it provides a community as well, right you know and it and it provides a sense of meaning you know like it, it it's 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 very it, black, white hispanic everybody wants a job now, Matt and others would kind of laugh at me and say, well shouldn't we have the shouldn't the poor have the right to leisure as much as the rich do and I agree you know what I mean like I, I wish. You know, maybe there is a working class who doesn't want to toil on a job and instead wants to be a, you know, a philosopher. <laughs> uh, you know, that's cool. Um, and so I think he's right about that. So, you know, my general, my general sense of finding that everyone's a job, I think others have pointed out, yeah, okay. Maybe you've talked to only people who want to. And there's a lot of people who want, who want to, you know, should be, be, be allowed to have the freedom to be, to not have to work. And I, I tend to agree with that as well. So I've given you a wishy washy answer because I'm pretty <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty unclear about what I want, what I think is right. Um, I do again, I do know that the problems we face right now are so so great that hey man, why, why not try that?
1: Yeah, it's a, I, I, it's an interesting idea. I I don't know how I think about it. I I, I definitely think that it is not going to happen anytime soon, just based on the politics of it and how the American system works. But like I, I
0: think if I had if I had to come up with one conclusion from my book, it's that the poor are screwed over in every imaginable way and they'll continue to get screwed over in every imaginable way. they'll get screwed up economically. They will get screwed up culturally. Anything
1: that helps the poor
0: will be, has a, has a low chance of passing.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, there was one, there's one part in the book that you just reminded me of, which was, uh, it was, you were talking to one of the white guys in Lewiston and he's complaining about the Somalis. And he's, his big complaint is that, um, they, uh, there's too many of them at the welfare office. So it takes too long for him to get his like disability check or whatever, if whatever it is he's getting or his section eight housing he has to wait too long. And I don't know, that just made me laugh of <laughs> the, the way people just uh, view themselves and, and view other people. Um, you know, obviously he saw himself as deserving of this stuff and the new, and the newer people as not deserving of it.
0: Well, you know, the, the largest story there, and it's interesting is I don't know if it made it into the book is, Cause I, I didn't put many quotes from experts in there. That was the intent. The intent was not. But, you know, an, the anthropologist I met in Lewiston who studies the Somali community, um, had said to me, you know, within the anthropological circles in sociology, the way we think of racism, racism is, racism is provoked. Racism flourishes when a vi- visibly different group is seen to be jumping the queue.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And here's this guy, a white guy, v- he says he's Vietnam vet. I can't, you know, I, I, I didn't fact check my, my, when people told me stuff, uh-huh. um, live, who's living on the margins, who's living in and out of section eight housing, living sometimes by the tent, you know, and by the river, um, who's on, who, who relies on handouts and relies on government assistance, whose line is literally bigger, <laughs> you know, and his view is very much like, and, and believe me, he was a racist. Um, and a lot of things he said, it was like, his view was, wait a second, I did all this for my country. And in, in, in his mind, again, I can't fact check it, he, he was injured in Vietnam. And, you know, or maybe it was his friend was, who's, you know, and wait, man, <laughs> who are these newcomers who are, quote, in his mind, jumping the queue? Now, the smallies will tell you they're not jumping any queue, man. They're just, you know, they don't get any special benefits. I think the, 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 I think the woman says... You know, they get maybe six months initial sub, initial um, assistance, and then then they're just like everybody else. Um, so so they're not jumping the queue. Um, but he he doesn't he doesn't see that see it that way. He sees them as literally jumping the queue. You know, there's a, there's a quote also of a, a person in Nebraska, a white person, who kind of ta- was talking about the Somalis there and their in their little agriculture town, how they would just use the wrong line at at Walmart. <laughs> right. You know, like he's like you know, the, you know the, the 10 items or less. <laughs> like, he used that as, a, I mean, there's another example of, quote, bending the rules, jumping the queue in his mind. Like, I'm, I'm, he, he only sees the Somalis doing it where I'm sure everybody does it. <laughs> right, right. You know, that's his, quote, justification for why for his views. You know, and so...
1: Um, so maybe, maybe this is the final question. This is kind of a meta question. So on the front of your book, you have a... Um, blurb from J.D. Vance. He says, a, prof- a profound book. It'll break your heart, but also leave you with hope. And on the back of the book, you have the full quote from J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Elgy. Uh, you have the quote from, a, qu- a blurb from Elizabeth Brunig, uh, whose husband, Matt, we just mentioned, who was a defending columnist at the Washington Post. You have Patrick J. Deneen uh, of the University of Notre Dame. I think he's a conservative political science professor. I could be wrong about that. You have Angela Nagel, who wrote Kill All Normies and is a, a Irish socialist, I think. And then you have Tom Cotton, who's a very conservative uh, U.S. senator. So this is like the most diverse blurb of the back of a book I think I've ever seen. You have socialists and you have like hard right, uh, Amer- you know, American conservatives. Um, and then your your publishing company is uh, Sentinel, which, as I understand, is like a, a conservative imprint of one of the larger publishing companies. So how did you, yeah. So what do you think about that? (laughs) Is this, you know, I think of you as like a lefty guy from, I remember you saying you voted for Bernie in the primary and that you're, you've always voted for Democrats. Um, But you have, um, Tom Tom Cotton is a very conservative guy endorsing your book. So like, what do you think about that? Um,
0: I think, I think the people on the opposite aisles to use political speak are doing it. I hope out of good, good, good faith. Like, um, you know, with, with good intention, meaning like, here's an opposing view listen to it. Um, I was surprised he blurbed it. Um, I was surprised um, people who blurbed it, blurbed it. Um, I mean, the left, the right wing, I think it's a very deeply left book. I don't know what you think. Um, you know, um, the, the Sentinel itself is committed. They've, they've made a committed effort to try to get um, liberal voices into their And I'm one of the, and they're looking for more. So, you know, if you're a liberal who is looking for a, public, a non-traditional publisher? <laughs> um, Sentinel is somebody who's willing to, to publish that. Um, I, you know, I generally don't believe in judging people by their past views. Um, if they're open-minded going forward, um, look, I know it's going to be problematic on the left that Tom Cotton blurred um, my book, but again, I'm taking it as an act of good faith on his part, um, and uh, I certainly hasn't called. I don't think it's going to make me any any more right-wing. Um, you know, um, it's not going to change my views necessarily. I'll, I'll, I'll have a dialogue with the right. Um, it has been somewhat surprising to me that it's resonated as well. It has on the within the right, some of the right community. Um, I guess, again, I'll ask you, I mean, I'm too close to it. Do you view it as a book from the left or a book from the right?
1: Um, I don't view it as from the right. Um, what actually just made me think of was, you know, I, when the, Around the time when The Wire, the HBO TV show The Wire was on, um, I remember there was like kind of a debate about whether this was a liberal or a conservative show. And the David Simon, the the guy who created it, is like a flaming liberal. Um, and you know, most Hollywood productions are like essentially made by liberals, but conservatives like looked at The Wire and was like, this is about, (laughs) this is a show about government failure and the things that government can't do. So what, what I came to th- think about it was like The Wire was like such an accurate d- depiction of reality that just in the way that we two people <laughs> in real life can look at something and the conservative says, oh, this is this makes sense to me. And the liberal says, this makes sense to me. Um, like, you know, maybe your book is like I mean, a lot of it is like you're just finding these people and letting them say what they want to say. So s- sometimes they say things that, <laughs> that jive more with conservatives and sometimes they say things that jive more with liberals or maybe they say something that's kind of ambiguous and either side could say, well, that proves that I'm right about, about X, Y, Z. So, yeah. So you're doing like, you know, like reporting and showing things that we don't usually see. And it's about a group, like groups of people who we don't usually think about. Um, Like, you know, in the wire, it was like the drug dealers and people who are addicted to drugs. Um, So, so yeah. So I think it's like, you know, a multiplicity of interpretations is, is possible.
0: Right. I guess, I guess, you know, putting that framework, I would say, yeah, the government has failed, but we need more government. <laughs> it's failed because it, 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 we don't have enough of it and it's failed because we don't have, um, you know, we don't have uh, a government that focuses on the working class. We have a government that focuses on the elite. So I agree that it's a, it's a, it says the government's failed. I agree with the conservatives, but their answer of we should have less government, I think is a little bit, uh, it, it's not necessarily my answer. And I, part of the reason I stayed away from giving policies suggestions was A, it's boring. And B, um, you know, one of the things I want people to come away with is I want people to judge for themselves. You know, I, I don't want to be the interpreter of, I think it's offensive for me to say, here's all these voices, you know, here's what they say you should do. I think you can put, I think people should judge for themselves what, 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 what those people are saying.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, your book is much more descriptive than prescriptive. Um, And you're, and, you know, because you're going to speak to people who are not usually uh, focused on in the media in any way. So, and like letting them, you know, tell their stories and talk about their lives and how they understand things. So, um, so yeah. And, you know, as, Shown, you know, it's yeah, it's about 75% um, text, but 25% of your photographs, and they're all very interesting to look at. I just randomly turned to this double page. Um, so, yeah, so I encourage people to, to if, if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, check out the book, uh, Dignity by Chris Arnotti. Is there anything else you want to say before we sign off? I think that's
0: good, and I want to thank you for having me, and, and I'm sorry about if you heard the lawnmower. Um, <laughs> And in, and in, in my my technical skills. But thanks again, okay?
1: Okay. Well uh I appreciate you coming back on. Find, find McDonald's in Rochester. <laughs> I'll I'll go I'll go and search for one. Um yeah, there's one there's one near me, but I I actually live now in this one of the Rochester's uh inner ring suburbs, so I this is I don't I doubt this is the um this is the one you're thinking about, but uh we'll figure it out. Okay. So thank you. Thank you, Chris. Um, thank you to our viewers and listeners. You know, you could subscribe to the show on iTunes. You could rate it on iTunes. You could do all sorts of other things. Um, and I encourage you to do so. So, uh, but we'll uh, thank you again and we'll see you again next time. All right. Cheers. Before you go, a quick message from the suits of blogging heads, TV, blogging heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to. And we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during pledge week, but we do have a small request. If you enjoy blogging as programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds.
0: Thank you.